Hi, everybody. This is Annalisa Sovereigns-Reed, the founder of Accessible Art History and your host tonight. Um, I'm going to give it a few more minutes just for people to join since it is just six o'clock on the dot right now. Uh, please note that this is being recorded because I'm going to put it up on my YouTube channel, but um, the screen is just recording the uh, presentation and so you can have your videos off. I do ask you have your mic off during it um, while I present, but of course I will have time for questions and discussion. So don't worry there. If um, you also have questions but don't want to speak, I can pull up the chat as well. So feel free to put everything um, on the chat if that is more comfortable for you. But yeah, I'm just gonna give it a few more minutes and thank you for joining this lecture today. All right, so let's go ahead and get started for this evening. Uh, again, thank you for joining. And if you're just popping in now, please note that this is going to be recorded, but only the pre presentation screen and my voice, um, unless you unmute yourself to ask a question. So don't worry uh, if you aren't comfortable with that, you won't be seeing it. It's really just me. And you can also post questions in the chat if you are more comfortable uh, typing them out um, versus speaking. So today for the Accessible Art History monthly lecture, we are talking about art of the Armana period in Egypt. Personally, this was a little bit of a selfish topic because it's my favorite period of Egyptian art. I have been fascinated with ancient Egypt since I was about eight years old. I read a book called Mummies in the Morning. It was one of the Magic Treehouse books and it just captivated me. Uh, honestly, I would have been an Egyptologist if I, uh, 
didn't like hot weather. I don't like hot weather and um, I'm not a big fan of dirt. So that kind of took away that career path for me, but I still love learning about it. So just a quick little about me for those of you who are new to accessible art history and um, the free lectures. So my name is Annalisa Sovereigns-Reed. I have a master's of education and I'm also an art historian and digital humanist. So what this means is my goal with my program, Accessible Art History, is exactly what the name sounds like. I found that academia can be very limiting and closed off when I was in undergrad um, getting my bachelor's in art history. And I kind of realized that it's such an amazing topic. I want more people to be able to access it, maybe without a university degree or the time to really devote to pursuing higher education. Plus, I just really love to talk about it. Um, and so I started posting on Instagram and YouTube and uh, pursued my master's of education so that I could um, so that I could bring better strategies to my program, also teach it professionally. I work at a nonprofit um, arts education center where I do uh, the education coordination, but I also am implementing more digital humanities and education programs. That is part of my goal um, as an art historian and digital humanist. So now that we got that out of the way, let's dive into the material. So we're going to talk a little bit about how Egypt was before the reign of Akhenaten, just so that we have a good baseline, a good foundation for what Egyptian society was like. And so we're going to break that into three main parts, religion, government, and art. Now, remember, this is kind of a broad overview, so I'm not going to go really in depth with this. But this is important information for you to know um, in order to understand why the Amrana period was so drastic and different. So first we have the traditional Egyptian religion. Now you may have gotten an inkling of this if you've seen the 1999 masterpiece, The Mummy. Um, but basically there are three main elements that you need to know about it. First is that it was polytheistic. Now this means the worship of multiple gods and many of these gods actually had animal heads. It's different from our uh, what we see in Greek and Roman society, um, where the gods were very much human. Here, they kind of blended human and animal elements. So I put three of the main uh, gods on the screen that you might recognize. This is Horus. He was kind of a warrior god. He was very powerful. He was seen as almost the equivalent of the god's pharaoh. He had a hawk head, and his mother was this lady right here. This is Isis. She was the queen of the gods. She was very powerful. In fact, the Romans later adopted her into their pantheon because she was that powerful. She was the goddess of women. She was the goddess of power. And she is shown as a female here, but there are some depictions where she has these giant rainbow wings like a bird. On her head, we have the uh, feather of Ma'at, which I'll discuss in a second. And the last guy on the right, that is our good friend Anubis. Now Anubis uh, was the god of the underworld. So equivalent to Hades in Greek mythology, he had a jackal head. He was also the god of mummification. So he worked closely with the king of the underworld, Isis's husband, Osiris, and he helped guide souls into the afterlife. Now the main goal of Egyptian religion was maintaining balance and order. And this was called Ma'at. Now the feather of Ma'at was used by Anubis and Osiris to weigh human souls. If your soul was heavier than the feather of truth or Ma'at, it would be devoured by a crocodile. This was a part of the deep belief in the afterlife of the ancient Egyptians. 
and how they held that the afterlife was a series of rituals, a series of journeys that you would have to undergo in order to finally reach that end destination. It wasn't just kind of you're dead, one and done. You had to actually move through different levels. And so Anubis was part of that process. And the interior of tombs kind of were like a guidebook. You know, I don't know. I'm from Washington State. We have a guy named Rick Steves that's on public television. Uh, it was kind of like the Rick Steves Guide to the Afterlife was what was written on tomb walls. That's how important their belief was. Now, in Egyptian government, the head honcho uh, was a pharaoh, uh, equivalent to a king in Western society. And again, I like to kind of break things into threes because I feel like three is a really easy number to remember. So the first element was the portrayal of strength of the pharaoh. The pharaoh's strength was equivalent to the strength of Egypt. So if you had a weak pharaoh, pharaoh Egypt was weak. If you had a strong pharaoh, Egypt was strong. This guy right here, uh, Amenhotep III, is considered one of the strongest pharaohs that there uh, was. He led Egypt in a very strong golden age. As you can see, he ruled for nearly 40 years uh, and died when he was probably in his 50s. And that's pretty long life for someone back in that time. The center of government, so the pharaoh's headquarters, was uh, in Thebes. This is known as Luxor today in. Um, in Egypt. It's also why the hotel in Vegas is named Luxor, but this was this traditional seat of power for the pharaohs. Now the pharaoh and his family and his viziers would travel up and down the Nile to visit different parts of their empire, which again did not necessarily correspond with our modern day borders of Egypt, but they're fairly similar. Um, but really their head place was in the palaces of Thebes. Okay. One wow. different thing, about um, the pharaohs is that they are considered a living god by the people. They participated in religious rituals that showed them as uh, the god of Egypt incarnate. So while the gods were kind of unseen and worshiped in different ways at the temples with the priests, the pharaoh was shown as a different um, embodiment of that worship and kind of was put on earth by the gods to help lead Egypt into glory. And finally, we have the traditional Egyptian art. Now this may seem very familiar to some of you. Uh, it's very popular in um, Western culture today. And I couldn't narrow it down to just three. I'm sorry, I had to go with four. So the first main element of Egyptian art is there was a strict canon. Now, what I mean by this is that there was a way to show everything and you did not deviate from that way. Remember, at this time, there wasn't a concept of art for art's sake. You know, today we go to Target or to TJ Maxx and we pick out a wall painting that we like to decorate our house because it's pretty. For ancient Egyptians, this wasn't the case. Art was there to serve a purpose. In this case, um, on the screen, we see this detail of Hennifer's Book of the Dead. And this was actually a scroll or papyrus that was used to guide the dead. This is Hunifer right here, being guided by our good friend Anubis into the afterlife. So this was an instructional manual on how to get through the trials of the afterlife. So you had to show everything accurately in this canon in order to make it to the afterlife without accidentally taking the detour. As a part of this, we see a combination of text and image quite frequently. So here we see all the things happening. So 
Cunifer is being led by Anubis. Here's Anubis. It's kind of hard to see in here because I had to shrink the picture down to fit on the slide, but Anubis has his judgment. So here's the feather of Ma'at and Cunifer's heart and our crocodile creature waiting to gobble it up if it wasn't ready and wasn't worthy. In Egyptian art, they tried to pack as much as possible into the scenes. So that's what we have registers. Now that just refers to multiple scenes happening along a horizontal plane. So you can see the text instructions are dividing up and we also have a scene up here of all the gods getting ready to meet Hunifer in the afterlife. We also have what's called hierarchy of scale. And it's kind of hard to see on this image, but Anubis is just a smidge taller than Hunifer. Hierarchy of scale is a very easy concept to see because the bigger you are, the more important you are. That's all there is to it. So you'll see in Egyptian art and art throughout the ancient world, if someone is shown as ginormous, pay attention to them because they are the most important. So now that we've got a handle on Egyptian canon, what was really common in the ancient Egyptian period, we're gonna talk about my friend Akhenaten. Now I have to confess, he is my favorite Pharaoh of ancient Egypt. He was weird. Um, he really shook things up in the society that was not used to being shaken up. And honestly, I would argue that he is not, um, he is the one that shook things up the most until we got to the Ptolemaic period with Cleopatra, which was a couple thousand years later. But it didn't always start off this way. So he actually started off life named Amenhotep after his father, which was the guy you saw in a couple screens ago. He was the second son of Amenhotep III and a woman named Queen Tia. Now, Queen Tia has a lot of amazing art. I highly recommend you looking her up. She is in some of the articles that I posted um, on the website. You can find that in the chat. Uh, she was likely a um, princess of some or a very high ranked noblewoman, but that part wasn't necessarily important to the Egyptians. They didn't record it. Anyway, she was um, she gave birth to Akhenaten as her second son, and his older brother was named Tutmos. Now they lived during the 18th dynasty during the New Kingdom period. Now this was a prolific dynasty where we saw a lot of changes happening in Egypt where power had truly been expanded and that really hit its height with Amenhotep III. He was very um, young when he came to the throne around 10 to 15 and he led troops into battle like no one's business. He was out there conquering for Egypt, expanding Egypt's borders, bringing all that riches of gold from Nubia and wood from the Mediterranean and really bringing power to Egypt. So Akhenaten, as a second son, was set for life, right? He wasn't going to have to find a job. He was going to work with the priests and then his connection to a royal family and their wealth was going to bring in more money for the priesthood, giving them more power. But then tragedy struck and Amenhotep's brother, Tutmos, died. Now he likely died of an um, injury or uh, illness, we're not quite sure, but Regardless, that thrust uh, Amenhotep into the spotlight. He came to power between ages 15 and 23 because there is some evidence he co-ruled with his father as a teenager. Again, the historical record is a bit spotty. We have to rely on what we have found um, in archeological digs. But regardless, he did eventually come to rule on his own after his father's death and was crowned again at Thebes with the crowns of Upper and Lower Egypt as Amenhotep IV. Now this early statue of him was very 
similar to what we see in the canon, right? We see him as a young man, he's strength, but he's got a little bit of a belly here. So I want you to put that into your brain for later um, as we're gonna talk more about Armana art. Now, Akhenaten's family um, is features heavily in art. So I wanted to give you some uh, background on that. His first marriage, um, either right before he came to the throne or right after was to this woman. Her bust has been seen by millions around the world. It's very famous. And her name was Nefertiti. She was crowned as his queen and great royal wife. Now this put her as the first lady of the land, even above her mother-in-law who was still alive when Akhenaten came to the throne. Um, and she was possibly his first cousin or her uh, Nefertiti's father and Akhenaten slash Amenhotep's um, mother were uh, brother and sister, but again, historical record is a little bit spotty, so we're not entirely sure. But pharaohs were polygamous, and this was basically out of necessity. How are you going to make alliances? Well, you're going to send your sons and daughters to marry into royal families across the area. So he had a woman named Kia, numerous unrecorded women. The only part that's recorded is that they were um, married to Akhenaten and that's about it. Like their, their names don't survive. They were minor wives who were there basically to uh, try and bear a child and to make some kind of marital alliance. Um, Kia was possibly one of these women, but she her name survives and that's pretty much all we know and at least one of his sisters. Now, this was very common in ancient Egyptian practice because it mimicked the marriage of Osiris and Isis together, who were brother and sister. So it was not uncommon for men to take their sisters uh, or daughters as their, um, as their wives. Now, this didn't always result in children, but in this case, it did. We don't know which sister it was. We only know it through DNA analysis because Akhenaten's son was none other than Tutankhamun. Again, this is one of the most famous archeological finds in the world. Uh, it was discovered a hundred years ago last year in Egypt by Howard Carter. And he was actually the son of Akhenaten and his sister who we know by the moniker, the younger lady, her mummy was not found in a coffin with any uh, identifying features on either the interior coffin or the larger sarcophagus. But uh, Egyptian universities ran medical tests and discovered that his parents were in fact those two people who shared parents. Akhenaten also had six daughters with Nefertiti. Uh, Tut was born kind of in between all of those girls. And you will also see a little bit of um, interest in that later. But just know that his family plays a huge part in his reign and that we will see how different that was compared to previous generations. All right, so now it's time for the big change. We've had all this background information about uh, King Tut and his father Akhenaten and how he was thrust into this position of being Pharaoh when for the majority of his life, he thought he was going to be a priest of uh, one or more gods, you know, kind of royal families would switch in and out who, which god they liked, typically the god of the sun, Amun-Re, was the most popular because he was uh, one of the head honchos. But Akhenaten wasn't, wasn't really getting down with that. So when he came to power for a couple of years, he ruled as Amenhotep IV, he did his duty and married um, Nefertiti and started to produce children for that next generation. But then he got to thinking, 
that why are we giving all these monies to different priests and having our people split in all these ways with all these allegiances to different gods? Why don't we just worship one God, the God of them all? And that was Aten, the sun disk. Now you can see that here. And I just mentioned Amun-Re, the king of the sun, the lord of the sun, but he wasn't the sun. Aten was the sun. So same thing as us looking up at the sky. Well, you shouldn't look directly at the sun, but you know, when we're out on a nice summer day, we see the sun. That's what Aten was worshiping. And so he decided and ruled as Pharaoh with his absolute power that the worship of multiple gods was no longer allowed in Egypt. Instead, all Egypt was just supposed to worship Aten, the sun disk. This is when Amenhotep changed his name to Akhenaten, which he is more commonly known as, and it translates to effective for the Aten. So by changing his name to this, he was trying to show that he was there to do Aten's bidding to move the people in Egypt towards worship of the singular sun disk. Now the temples, you might be wondering, oh gosh, what happened to all those temples? Like I've seen them on TV and there's a lot, they're huge. He tried to get rid of them. He drove out the priest and said, you convert or you are banished or even death. And some saw the writing on the wall and said that, you know, their lives were more valuable to them than their religion. And so they decided to convert and become priests of Aten. Some of the new buildings were converted into worship for Aten, but many of them were dismantled and their wealth and materials taken away to a new place to build. This was a huge shift. Like imagine for thousands of years, as far back as your family can remember, they've had the same religious system. Egypt was one of the oldest civilizations um, ever, honestly. It had been happening. There had been a united Egypt for almost 2,000 years before Akhenaten came to the throne. And for pretty much all of that time, religion had stayed the same. Yes, there were new gods and new stories developed, but the core aspects of polytheism and the way things worked had stayed the same. This was not very popular with the people, as we'll see later in this discussion. They, they didn't love having their traditions just taken away from them by this man with all the power in their world. It was a very strange time to be an Egyptian. So Akhenaten decided, I don't wanna associate myself with the old ways. I am new, I am radical, and I am changing the world. So he left Thebes behind. It became, you know, it's still a large city by ancient Egyptian standards, but it was no longer the capital. So he moved to a new city that wasn't built yet. It was basically just a patch of deserts in Egypt. And he called it Akhenaten, partially after himself, partially because it meant effective for Aten. And so that translation kind of worked for him, right? This new city was dedicated to the worship of Aten, to the glory of this new government. Of course, he had all his power still, but he wasn't about to be that radical. But he decided that he was going to build a new city from the ground up using the materials that he had taken from temples and the money to pay the people also came from that temples it was kind of a weird place to be honest it was kind of in the middle of nowhere Thebes was fairly centrally located meaning that the pharaoh can move to either end of upper and lower Egypt in order to create um kind of continuity with his reign and making sure his people saw him or if there was some kind of emergency he could get there quickly but he decided to just put it there um, because it was fresh, untouched land. He described it um, in, a, in writing that was uncovered later at the site. 
as a seat of the first occasion which he had made for himself that he might rest in it. So he saw this untouched land as perfect for Otten because nobody had defiled it with the old ways. Again, the Pharaoh was no longer a living God. Excuse me, he was more of a servant of Otten. He was there to glorify Otten and show people how to glorify Otten. But because this was more of a monotheistic situation, he wasn't necessarily the one um, that should be worshipped. Again, this was very strange for people. They were used to their Pharaoh being not only their absolute ruler, but one of the pantheon. And part of the reason this actually survived for us, as you can see in this picture, um, this is the foundation of the Temple of Aten at Armana or Akhenaten. It was um, buried in the sand, and then it, a nearby village is called Pelaramana. And so the name for the period and the town is kind of moved over to this Amarna to keep it separate from the name of the pharaoh. The biggest shift for me to study, because I'm an art historian, for many people that they see is art. Now we named it Armana style after the city. And the first major difference is square versus round. Now I'll switch to the next slide because it actually shows these images bigger. So here's our friend Amenhotep III, Akhenaten's father on the left. And as you can see, he's very stylized, right? He's got a square jaw. He's got square shoulders. The corners of his crown are very sharp and pointed. His beard is very stiff and elongated. And this is just a shot of his uh, head, but you can kind of see a bit of his torso and we can see how slim and powerful it looks. He is a young man. Amenhotep never let himself be shown as an old man. So this statue could be from any point of his reign really. Um, but he projects strength and virility. Like this man is a leader and we can tell that because he has these stylization. Now, if you look over on the picture of the right, this is a torso of a statue of Akhenaten. Look how rounded it is. His cheekbones and his chin and his jawline, even his nose and lips are fleshy and they're round. Even the corners of his crown, which he kept the same with his government. He didn't change the crowns of Egyptian pharaohs. They're not sharp or pointy either. His beard isn't quite as strong on his face. It kind of just sits there. His shoulders are sloped down and we can't see much of his chest as we can in the other statue. Um, so you can tell it shows some musculature, but again, it's a little more fleshy. Now there are some theories about that. My personal favorite is that Akhenaten was actually an alien. Uh, that's very big in the ancient alien circle and it just makes me giggle. Um, but actually it's possible he had some sort of disease and it changed the shape of his body. Um, it wasn't uncommon for Egyptian pharaohs, now that we can have the technology to study their DNA, to have some form of genetic diseases due to the rampant amount of incestual offspring. And so it's possible that is the case, but it's also possible that he just wanted to break with tradition, right? He saw what his dad did and he is doing the polar opposite. Dad's square, I'm round, there you go. Either way, it's fascinating that a canon that has stood for nearly 2000 years is suddenly just being completely changed as part of a larger cycle of changes that took place during Akhenaten's reign. Next in the Armana style, we see an emphasis on family. 
Now, I mentioned earlier um, in the talk that Akhenaten's family was very big, six daughters, one son, and likely more children that didn't survive because he had so many um, wives. And fast forward to the next slide so you can see it bigger. Again, I love comparing them to his father because it's within the same generation's time period. No, I'm not comparing old kingdom to new kingdom. So this is a colossal statue. Amenhotep III has a bunch of these. They're all over the world and they're scattered all throughout Egypt because he really liked to show himself as a giant figure. So this on the left is Amenhotep III and sitting next to him is his queen. And you can see there's not really that much affection between them. Um, there is a um, hand, her hand kind of sits on his waist, but they're staring straight ahead. They're not really looking at each other. And, you know, it, it, it's kind of disengaged. Below them, we see a, a little girl that is one of their daughters. It doesn't say which one on the statue. Unfortunately, they had like five or six. And we do see the hierarchy and scale again in both of these. So that didn't change, right? These are Akhenaten's children. There's the princess. So they're, they're similar concepts, but not quite the same. But now look over at the right image. This is a very famous house altar featuring Akhenaten, Nefertiti, and three of their daughters. They are sitting in these little pillows inside their house. This is a very small altar. Um, would have been used for private worship. It's something that Akhenaten probably took with him from palace to palace in uh, Armana to facilitate private worship. He lifts one of his little girls to his lips and he's giving her a kiss. Nefertiti has one of their daughters on her lap and it's kind of hard to see because of the, the quality of the picture. But the third daughter is actually standing on her mother's arm trying to play with her earrings. The text describes the scene and then we see Aten the sun disc and he has sun rays, and those little hands at the end of the sun rays are actually holding ox. Now, ox are the symbol of life in ancient Egypt. So the sun is literally giving life to the pharaoh and blessing them with this new religion that they brought in. I just love the amount of affection that is in this painting. Like the little tender kisses, the child on the lap. Like this is Akhenaten showing his family and how they are part of this new way of life. Like he has produced the next generation of rulers. And they're going to continue Akhenaten and Aten's glory throughout Egypt for at least the next generation. And it's just so different than this stoic royal dynasty picture that we see in Pharaoh's times past. Instead, we have the scene that, you know, if it was a photograph, it could be a photograph of really any family these days. And it's, it's just so adorable and loving. I did a whole podcast episode on it, actually. We did have a question in the chat that said, could the change in form have been due to an interaction or influence with art styles outside of Egypt at the time? Now, this is a great question, and I wouldn't rule it out necessarily. There is, um, in recent years, especially I would say within the last 15 to 20 years, there has been a significant amount of evidence of cross-cultural exchange in the ancient world. Ancient people moved a lot more than we are actually thought in years past. The thing is, though, that this style is just so unusual for the time that it's kind of its own isolated phenomenon. I wouldn't doubt that there are some pieces that come through from other um, areas, but it, it's not 100% true because a lot more of ancient art, particularly in the ancient Middle East and Near East, has the qualities of being very um, two-dimensional, side-profiled, square uh, 
images, but it, it is possible, you know, anything's possible because we are finding every year more and more evidence of cross-cultural exchange. And there, I mean, there even has been theories over the years that Akhenaten's monotheistic ideals were somehow influenced by ancient Judaism um, because, you know, Moses came about a generation or two later during the, the 19th dynasty. So it's possible Akhenaten had heard something about monotheism while he was working at a priest and kind of combined it with his own Egyptian attitudes. Again, there's no textual evidence for this in his writings. We do have a lot of his writings. He was actually quite the poet and songwriter. Um, but it has been a theory put forth by religious and art historians over the years because, you know, monotheism is a very um, unusual phenomenon in ancient cultures. Great question. Thank you for asking. So what we see most, I think, that we can break these ideas down to is emotion and fluidity, right? Things are softer. They're more flowy. There's more interaction between figures at this time, you know instead of it being this kind of mysterious entity of the pharaoh and his family and the religion, Akhenaten is much more open with his people. He's trying to show them like what his new religion is about and what he is trying to show them is that this is the way. I mean, I'm not trying to quote the Mandalorian here, but you know, this is the new way for Egypt. This is what he, he saw for his, his people. And he was trying to shake it up. Like he was ready to make a change and he wasn't gonna let anyone stop him. We see letters and songs and poems in preserved that show us like he was really committed to this and he truly believed that polytheism was out the door and it was all about Otten. And that required a lot of change and he was taking that revolution on. Unfortunately, it would not last. It's kind of sad story, especially if you're Akhenaten, but his religious revolution basically died with him. So Akhenaten died when Tut, his son, was about nine years old. Thankfully, we have a lot of evidence about Tut's life because his tomb was virtually untouched when it was discovered by Howard Carter. So we were kind of able to piece together what had happened after Akhenaten died. Now Tut's last uh, name was actually Tutankhaten when he was born. And when he came to the throne at only nine years old, he was still a child, even by ancient Egyptian standards. So a lot of people had to help him, including viziers. And one of those was a man named I. Now I was possibly his um, kind of step-grandfather through his stepmother Nefertiti. Uh, that was her father, most likely. And he had been a part of the government for many years and he saw that the common people of Egypt, the regular Joes and Janes, were really wanting to go back to the old ways, those familiar ways. It had only been 15 to 20 years. So this polytheistic religion that had stood for thousands of years was actually very still ingrained in, in people's lives. And so his viziers kind of advised him to gradually start reverting back to those old ways. And one of those things was to change his name to what it is now, Tutankhamun. Again, Amun to honor Amun Re. And slowly, um, Armana, the city, started to be dismantled. The capital was moved back to Thebes. That's actually why we know so much about the Armana period, ironically, is people kind of jetted out of Armana as soon as Akhenaten was dead. And it got lost in the sand and buried over time, kind of preserving it like a time capsule for us. So ironically, it didn't accomplish what they wanted it to. 
He married his sister, um, Nefert excuse me, his half sister, Anakshinamun, who was Nefertiti and Akhenaten's daughter. They had two children together, both girls who were both stillborn and buried in his tomb. And that's where the dynasty ended. Um, sort of. That's where the blood dynasty of Amenhotep III and his uh, forebears ended because I later took the throne after uh, Tut. And it then it passed to a general named Horemheb, who eventually died and passed it on to the man who would form the 19th dynasty. All those pharaohs from Tut forward kept with polytheistic worship all the way until the last pharaoh, Cleopatra. So it really was only a short time within a generation that we have this religious revolution. But because Amana was buried in the sand, it's come back and it's a fascinating period for us to study and to understand. Um, and we, we get to know a lot about it because of this kind of hiding it away in the desert. And the art gradually also goes back to the way that it was. We can kind of see it here where we have some of the traditional Egyptian elements, but there's that sense of fluidity and emotional depth from the period but eventually it also goes away um, to back to that traditional canon that we talked about at the beginning of the lecture. I highly recommend on the website and the resources section, there's a PDF you can download from the Metropolitan Museum of Art called um, The Royal Women of Armana. And it has some of fabulous pictures of the sculptures that um, I wish I had time to show you all of them because not only they're a little funky, they're just beautiful. So. Highly recommend checking that out. I put several resources um, on the website in case you want to learn more. Smart history, a couple of things that I put together for accessible art history. Um, but it's uh, such a fun topic for me. And I especially love talking about it because most people have heard of them when I mention it from ancient aliens. So I like to show them like, no, we actually got some art historical and historical background for this. Now, are there any questions? Feel free to put them in the chat or um, unmute yourself and ask. I'm happy to answer any questions. All right, so it looks like there's no questions. If you think of something later, if you're coming up with a, a reading question, I have my email on the website. Feel free to email me. I will also post this recording on YouTube on Saturday um, and that link will be put on the website as well. If you have any other questions, um, have they found any other example of Armana art beyond pictures? Um, there are lots of pieces that have survived essentially because of it being um, buried for so long. So, we have um, a lot of letters. There's actually a cache of letters that was found called the Armada letters. And they were essentially governmental records that were buried in Armada to keep them safe when things kind of went to hell after Akhenaten's death. And they were found in the, uh, I believe the late 19th century, early 20th century. And it was basically like if you went to um, the Library of Congress or a presidential library and pulled up all of those documents that they have to keep records of. So we actually kind of get an insight into the government and religious workings um, at the time from those letters. Uh, but beyond um, the pictures, there is a lot of sculpture as well. Um, the Met has a really good collection of it because they sent 
um, some of the people, the early uh, patrons of the Met went to Egypt and bought it and brought it back and gave it to the museum. Uh, so there is a lot of that. We also have found the tomb of Akhenaten. If you go to his Wikipedia page, there's like a whole description of the tomb and a picture of the mummy. I didn't want to put it on there just because like it's a little sensitive for some people if you put an image of a, a dead person on your presentation. But you can see it if you are curious. And like I said, during the presentation, they have found, um, been able to run genetic tests on the mummies um, to kind of link them together. And they have found most of the mummies of this, this part of the 18th dynasty. Uh, I'm glad everybody seemed to um, enjoy this lecture. I'm really happy to be doing that. I am going to continue these at least once a month. Um, as it works with my schedule. So if you would like to uh, subscribe to my YouTube or Instagram, things will be posted on there um, for you. And I'm so happy people enjoy this. I love talking about art and it's fun to talk about with people who are interested in the same subjects that I am. I believe I'm going to do a presentation on Black History Month um, and Black artists next month. So um, please keep your eyes open for that. Have a wonderful evening or day, depending on where in the world you are. It is dinner time for me here on the West Coast of America. So have a wonderful day and I will see you guys next month.